Well, let's pray. Our everlasting God, we come again at the beginning of a week to lay our praises before you and our thanks to plead for our needy souls and the souls of those around us, our nation, our world. God, we glory in the mysteries that belong to you alone, things that no theologian can fully explain. You are the triune God. You have so clearly demonstrated and told us over and over that there is one God. And yet you exist in three persons. And each person possessing equally, eternally and fully all the divine essence, the glory and the perfections. God, we glory in the fact that the mystery of the incarnation, that you could unite yourself to humanity. How can a human body and soul be the, the true home of eternal God, the infinite and incomprehensible God? And yet you have. And you have come in the person of your son to become our representative, to become the one who would obey for us where Adam failed, where we have all failed. He did not. You have come in the person of your son to bear your own wrath, which we cannot afford to pay for. Our crimes against you are crimes against an infinite king. Our guilt is infinite. God, we thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell in a people that it amazes us you would want to do, have anything to do with. Sometimes we feel this is the greatest mystery. It's the one that we certainly feel most. Why does the Holy One love those that are unholy? Why did your love come first? Why didn't you tell us to clean ourselves up first? Why didn't you choose the best of humanity, the smartest, most capable God, you have demonstrated in a thousand, thousand ways the glories of the riches of your grace in the way you have rescued a single sinner just one day. But you rescue a company that no person could ever number. You rescue a company of people every moment, every day. We thank you, God, for these mysteries and we ask that this morning here and across the world that what is occurring as believers gather in whatever condition that the mystery would continue. That the strangeness of your people in the eyes of the world, that the, that the mystery of common, not particularly capable people are used by you to do uncommon things. Teach us more about yourself. Teach us what it is to be your disciple. We pray to that this day, what we do together, what we do when we get in the car to drive home, how we act this evening, how we work this week, that every Christian here God, that our heart's desire would be that your name would be set apart again and again, raised up higher than any other name, every other option forgotten. We pray that your kingdom, that precious and perfect rule of Jesus of Nazareth, would spread today. We pray that all that he deserves would be given that today would be part of that new men and women trusting you and not themselves, new boys and girls, and every area of our lives. God, we find our prayers are so, so small compared to what our thoughts are of you, and then our thoughts are so small compared to what you've described in Scripture, and that is so small compared to what you are in your infinity. So we come this morning not as grown-ups who can explain everything. We come as children who, by your grace, have seen someone 
so much greater than ourselves. Give us all that we need to know and do all of your will with all of our hearts today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our reading is taken from Matthew chapter 10. We'll start in verse 16. Matthew 10 and verse 16. We're going to pick back up with the themes that we looked at last week with Christ's uh, directions and warnings and encouragements that he gives to these early disciples. Behold, Christ says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess them before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose 
his reward. Well, that's the passage that we began to look at last week. And I had hoped to get all the way through it, but about halfway through, I realized we weren't going to get anywhere near all the way through it. And so I had hoped this week to finish working through it, kind of just hitting the high points, but we're not going to get finished this week. So I think we'll get finished next week. We're looking at the the theme of what does Christ say about a disciple? And you remember that there is, uh, when we think of a Christian, the word disciple applies to every true believer, a follower. But we're not just pupils that are taught by Christ in a classroom. Being a disciple is much more like being an apprentice than being a, a student in a college class. Uh, we are under the all-authoritative, conforming, molding influence of Christ our King. We are being taught how to follow him, how to think as he thought about everything, how to feel and desire as he felt and desired, and how to do and respond as he did and responded. And we're being taught while on the job. No Christian, you know, when we come to Christ, no Christian is allowed to do what we think would would be best. We think, oh, if only I could just go off to some monastery somewhere, you know, if I could just go to a seminary and I could have some classes, maybe for a few months or a year or two, and God could teach me everything I need to know about being a dad, a husband, wife, mom, kid, sibling, worker. But instead, God, in his perfect wisdom, by his spirit, with an open book in our hand, Christ's teaches us how to follow him on the job. Now, when we come to passages like Matthew 10, which is, I believe, the passage that is, gives us the most, or at least it is the largest passage, speaking about the nature of discipleship. In, here, in this passage, particularly in the context of sending out the 12 to be missionaries to kind of go ahead of Christ as he's traveling through Galilee... And he gives them very specific instructions for how they can be missionaries to run ahead of him and prepare the towns for him or to speak to people that he won't be able to get to. When we come to a passage like this, you remember there were two dangers we talked about last week. One is the danger of looking at a passage like this and saying, um, this is the way a Christian is supposed to represent Christ. And you take everything in Matthew 10 uh, as if it's a prescriptive passage. It prescribes what we're supposed to do. So anytime a preacher goes somewhere, he he only takes one pair of shoes and he takes one staff and he doesn't take any money or any extra food. And so when we look at a passage like this, there are there are quite a few things that we have to admit are unique to this passage. A clear example from last week is that they were not to tell the gospel to anyone but Jews. They were not to go to Samaritans. They were not to go to the Gentiles. So some of chapter 10 is specific to those people. And some of chapter 10 has general principles that apply to every Christian. And we talked about that last week. But this week, the passage we're looking at, verse 16 to the end of the chapter, which we won't look at every verse there, but we'll hit some of the big themes, the high points, In this section, I think we find quite a bit more that has general application to every Christian. Now, what we're going to be looking at this morning in particular is I want us to see what Christ says by way of warning and by way of encouragement. So he gives warnings. He tells us things ahead of time. I'm sending you in a certain way, and these are things that you ought to be expecting. And then he tells them, Do not fear. It's a command. It is inappropriate for a servant of this king to live gripped with fear. Well, why not? And he gives four great reasons, and we'll hit those right at the end. When we think of following Christ, you cannot think of following Jesus Christ as an individualistic thing. It is not an individualistic thing. It is not an individual activity. It is personal. So in a sense, we think, I must follow my king. And that's true. So it is personal. Nobody can follow Christ for you. The church doesn't follow Christ for you. Your family doesn't follow Christ for you. Your preachers don't follow Christ for you. 
So it is personal, but it is a thing that is done always in the company of other people. There is the church. And Christ says a lot about how we follow him connected with other believers, but that gets filled out in a much greater degree as we continue to read the New Testament. There is uh, following Christ in your home. And there are some things said about Christ there, but that too gets a lot of detail as you read the epistles in the New Testament. If I'm a Christian, how does that change the way I'm a husband or a dad, a mom or a wife, a child or a brother or sister? But the other area that Christ speaks about a lot and then gets filled out later in the New Testament is how do you follow Christ in a world that rejects Christ? And because they recognize you, Christian, for Christ-likeness, there's something about you that reminds them of Jesus. There's not just what you say, but how you live. That recognition causes a certain response. And if you are not prepared for it, then you can be shaken. You know, you just kind of shift the car into neutral. You, you get off the path and just sit down and say, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong here. Because life has gotten so difficult. I have so many times uh, in the past had, especially young people, uh, thinking of a young lady in particular in the very early days of the church, who, with uh, a lot of zeal for the Lord in college, she wanted to do summer missions. So, so you had to get your pastor to fill out a, a reference for you, you know, personal reference. So I did. And uh, so she was going somewhere up north, and she was going to work with a, a small church there. A couple weeks into that, it was pretty difficult, and it got more difficult. And she came back early, if I'm remembering correctly. And the reason given by parents and the young lady was a pretty common reason. That is, uh, it, must have not, it must not have been God's will because it was so difficult. And that really is one of the common errors that we all are tempted toward if we're following Christ and we're not prepared for some of the negative reactions that Jesus describes in chapter 10. So every believer, if you're going to follow Christ... If you're going to live for Christ, if you're going to speak for Christ, you're going to have to understand what he says about representing him as his disciple in a world that rejects him. Well, in verse 16 to the end, we're not going to go verse by verse because I want to hit some key themes here. The first thing that we notice is that Christ's plan for world conquest, we could say, for the spread of the gospel is is connected to a very specific and alarming way that he sends his people. If someone were to ask you, so how will the nations hear the gospel? Or how will the nations, you know, how all those, all those passages we looked at in Isaiah, how, how are the nations going to be brought to Christ? And the answer is, in part, found in Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd or clever as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men. Beware of men. Let's just take that. Christ gives some very simple pictures. He just uses animals here, and that will stick with us throughout our life. Obviously, it's true of the 12, but it's true of every believer afterwards as well, that there will be resistance when we represent Christ. We can expect, later he says, all people will hate you for my sake. And that doesn't mean that every person without exception, for example, a true Christian doesn't hate another true Christian. When that true Christian lives like Christ and, and speaks the things that Christ would want us to speak. So when he says, oh, he doesn't mean there will not be an exception. And he doesn't mean it'll show up in the same way with every person who's not a Christian and we have contact with. But it does mean this. Throughout every age and in every country, every part of the world, even the Bible Belt of the United States, even in evangelical church gatherings on Sunday, do not be surprised when you find that people are opposed to you as a Christian 
because they are opposed to Christ. So Christ, right in verse 16, before he tells them about the, all, all the ill treatment they will receive, he says something that is so encouraging, and I don't want us to miss it, and that is this. It is not accidental when a Christian suffers abusive treatment by non-Christians. It is not ultimately because of the enemy. It is because the king sends disciples like that. It is his will that you display him to the world. And one of the ways that you and I will do this, Christian, disciple, is that you, like him, like Paul, like every other Christian, you will be sent like a sheep among wolves. You are required to be like a snake and like a dove. So what in the world is that talking about? Well, sheep among wolves is pretty simple. We think, okay, so I'm going to go and I will be like one who uh, brings truth to people and they, they may have a, uh, in some measure, a violent response, an emotionally violent response. They have some negative response. And I don't have what it takes to protect myself. And that, that's a good place to start. When he talks about being crafty or, uh, or clever and shrewd like a serpent, he is not saying this. I'm going to send you as sheep among wolves. And you know sheep don't do very well with wolves. So you're going to have to arm yourself and be particularly clever about how you do this. No, give up all hope. Sheep never have what it takes when surrounded by wolves. But Christ sends you as a sheep. And Christ knows that you're among wolves. And his awareness of your need is enough. He will protect us in whatever way he sees fit. And he will let you pay whatever cost he chooses. But from the very beginning, let's be clear. The Christian is not, the, uh, is not in history. Generally, the Christian is not the one who is part of the ruling party of a country. You know, our candidate is in our Values are ruling. Oftentimes, through, through Christian history, we see that the Christian is a sheep surrounded by wolves. Second, you're to be like a serpent and you're to be like a dove because of this situation. Well, what in the world is he talking about? We don't often find the Bible talking about snakes in a positive way, but this is, the, this is one of those places where a snake is a positive reference. You are to be shrewd. Or you are to be um, clever. You know, you are to be street smart like a snake. If, you know, um, if you see a snake in your yard, it is not like a sheep. It doesn't kind of just slither toward danger and get itself killed. It avoids things. It's clever. The very next verse he says, beware of men. One of the ways that we can be like snakes, all right, in, in that clever way, in a pure clever way, is this, that when God gives us warnings about the depth of sin in human nature, do not ignore it because the people that you work with are friendly and they're nice, you know, they're, they're not murderers and, you know, and they're not horrible, cruel people. And then when you represent Christ and they reject Christ and they reject you and you're shocked it's easy for us to forget that what the scripture says about us is true because we all and everybody around us wears a mask of some sort to kind of hide the fact that sin goes that deeply, that sin is that ugly. Don't be surprised. Later, he says, if it comes up in your family, don't be surprised if it comes from a government and don't be surprised if it comes from religion, from people that say, hey, I love Jesus and yet they hate what you say about Christ. If we are to follow Christ, we will have to be clever and shrewd. Do not be naive. Sometimes I hear preachers be naive and they say, it like, they say things like this. I went to that church and everything was wonderful. And then they say, but that was just a honeymoon period. And then next thing I know, all these people, they start hating me. And then I just had to leave because I'm not going to put up with that. Or I'm not going to let my wife be treated that way. Or, you know, they give all these excuses. And you want to, you know, you want to take them to Matthew 10 and say, what 
did you expect? I hear preachers say this, uh, so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, he's run away, you know, he's run off from his family, he's run away with another woman, and, you know, he's just gone into this wretched lifestyle, and he was a deacon in the church, and, you know, and everybody thought he was a wonderful Christian, or he was a member of the church, and now, now he's off living this crazy, you know, self-destructive life. And the preacher says this, I don't understand, he knew the truth. Where in the Bible does it say that knowing the truth keeps a man from destroying himself spiritually? It's not just knowing. What they mean is this. That man was a Calvinist. That man liked my preaching. I can't believe he would do that. Do not be naive. The world is not our friend. We are not to hate the world. We're not to hate our enemies. We love our enemies. But be wise, you are sheep among wolves, always. Now, be wise like a serpent, but not spiritually crafty. I mean, sorry, not sinfully crafty. I remember reading Hudson Taylor, and he was talking, you know, he's a missionary to China, and he's talking to the other missionaries in China, and he warned them. He said, now the Chinese are a crafty people, and you are not allowed to be crafty. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3. And uh, four, don't be crafty, he says. We're not crafty. We don't have to be clever in that sinful way. We don't have to outsmart the enemy and kind of, you know, in, in 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 a dishonest way, cutting corners, you know, beat the enemy at his own game. We belong to a king. And so the king will give us all we need to do his will. And the king will make our efforts effective. So we're not to be crafty or sinful. We're not to be like the wolves. We're to be like a dove. Never think that unjust treatment that you receive as a Christian in your home, at work, at school, on the ball field, in a church. Never take that as a valid excuse for you responding to the people who are treating you poorly in the same way that they are acting towards you. You cannot become a wolf. You are a dove. You are innocent. Well, if you think that this is the only passage he talks about this, let me give you two other passages that Paul mentions that I, well, one that Paul mentions, one that Peter mentions that I find very encouraging because this does seem pretty difficult when we say, I want to follow Christ, and Christ says, great, walk with me, and I will send you as a sheep, <laughs> and you'll be surrounded by wolves. And we say, wait, Jesus, that, I'm not sure about that. Well, let me give you two other passages. If you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. <laughs> Philippians 1, verse 27 through 29, Paul is giving them instructions about how they are to behave. As a church. And in verse 27, he kind of sums it up. But in verse 29, he says something that's shocking. And it goes hand in hand with Matthew 10. So verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Verse 29. For, here's the reason. For, why not be alarmed? Because to you it has been granted, here's the gift, For Christ's sake, that's the wonderful background of the gift. The Father has given every Christian a gift for for the sake of Jesus. Not only to believe in him, faith is a gift, but also to suffer for his sake. 1 Peter chapter 2, turn there, verse 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. So, To the Philippians, Paul says, you've been given a dual gift. You've been given the gift of faith, and you've been given the gift of suffering for Jesus' sake. 
That's why you're to conduct yourself in a very particular way. 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter written to Christians who are beginning to experience not just Jewish but Roman persecution. He writes this in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Why did Christ call me? Why was I brought to him? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So whatever we're about to hear about Jesus, it was not because of his sinfulness, his stupidity. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So we have been called for the purpose of suffering on behalf of Christ, as Christ suffered as the representative of his father. And like Christ, the path here is laid for us. It is not to be a suffering that we brought on to ourselves by our own stupidity, uh, our our own, you know, rashness, uh, you know, our own flaws. But it is because we represent Christ. And when they revile us for loving Jesus Christ, we are not to revile in return the dove. And when we suffer, we are not to utter our threats. But we are to entrust ourselves continually to him who judges righteously, just like our Savior did. So from those passages, we learn some encouraging things. Sheep among wolves, that is God's plan. Sheep among wolves, that is the purpose for which you were called. That is the gift that God has given the disciple. So do not do a couple of things. Number one, do not embrace the martyr's complex. Do not fill the internet with your entitlement, Christianish whining that how terrible it is that good Christian people like me get treated so terribly. Do not be shaken off the course of obedience when. Those that you thought were friends treat you poorly. And the only way I know to avoid those is to get it straight in our mind that what Christ said in chapter 10 of Matthew and is repeated over and over in the scriptures, that that really is for every Christian today, that to some measure you will be rejected because the world rejects Christ. And if a person rejects Christ, they will have to reject the Christian who looks like Christ talks like Christ, smells like Christ. And if you are not prepared for that, you will either stop obedience because it's painful or you will become a professional whiner on the internet and you will say that we, I'm entitled to. And why is everyone treating poor Christians terribly? As if Christ had no Matthew 10 in the Bible for us. Now, I want us to to get some help again from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We won't stay there long because Chuck has already preached through this. But I think it's helpful to see how Paul responded to the same things. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, look at that. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, Paul makes a very clear statement about himself. He is working together with God. He is a co-worker with God. He calls himself that in the first letter to the Corinthians. Christian, you are a co-worker with God. If you speak to someone in your family about the Lord, you are doing that not on your own, but as a co-worker with God. If you speak to someone at school or on the ball field or on the bleachers, if you talk about the greatness of Christ, you know, at work when you're just hanging out with friends, not when you're supposed to be working, but, you know, when there's a break, you are a co-worker with God. Now, that's quite a claim, and Paul gives evidence for that. First, in verse 3, he says, there are things that I don't do. And then in verse 4 through 10, there's things, there are things that I do. What won't he do? If he's a co-worker with God, Paul refuses to do anything that would cause, that would give a genuine cause for offense. All right? People are offended. 
by what Christ says. And people are offended by Christian lives. But Paul says, it is not because of anything I did wrong. Nobody could look at Paul and say, you are offensive because of this. You know, because of your temper, because of your sharp tongue, because of your attitude, because of your hypocrisy. You preached one thing and then you went back to your, you know, your host home and you lived a totally different way. When it's us, it's one thing. But when it's you, there's a different set of rules. So Paul says that he was careful not to do anything, anything that would give a fair and just cause of offense to those who weren't Christians. He didn't do anything that someone could look at him and say, I can't believe the things you say because I know you. More than that, verse 4 to 10, he said he took these things he's about to say, he used every one of them, he took them and used them like tools, every one of them, to commend his claims. That is, the things that I'm saying about this Jesus of Nazareth, the things that I'm saying about me, that I belong to Jesus of Nazareth, and you can trust what I'm saying, all of that, the evidence for that, I want to commend that to you. By the way, I do things, not just what I don't do, but what I do. And then Paul gives in verse 4 through 10, these lists of things. He lists things that he Um, that he is willing to endure general hardships. And then he gives a list of specific hardships. Then he gives more than that. He gives a list of the cost he's willing to pay as a representative of Jesus. He gives a list of of the specific motives he uses. And he gives, at the end, a list of these paradoxes. Let me read them for you. Look at verse 4. But in everything. All right, that is pretty clear, isn't it? In everything, he's going to commend himself as a servant of God. And then he lists it in much endurance and much patience. And then, and then we have patience in what? In afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, which means like mob uprisings, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for my right hand and my left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as a deceiver, yet he's true, nobody really knows him, he's unknown, yet he's well known, Dying, yet behold, he lives. Punished, but he's not put to death. Sorrowful, but always always rejoicing. Poor, yet he makes many people rich as having nothing, and yet he possesses everything. Now that is a list that sounds so super spiritual, you may feel that it doesn't apply to you. But this is, the, this is a, a filling out of what Christ is talking about in Matthew 10. If you're going to follow Jesus, he will send you as a sheep among wolves. Be wise, but be innocent. What does that look like? It looks like Paul. Do not do anything that gives genuine cause for offense to be attached to the gospel, to your Christ. And when distresses and hardships come, when ill treatment comes, when beatings and imprisonments come, when it requires you to stay up late in the night to, to follow Christ, to bring the gospel to someone and you're missing sleep, or maybe you have to miss meals, when it, when it requires you know, that you study the scriptures, when it requires love and patience and kindness to people who are not loving and patient and kind, when it requires that your life become this crazy paradox, you know, he's poor, but he makes people rich. You know, he, he suffers so many sorrows and yet he himself is happy. However you look at that, that's a Christian. Not all the time, but that can be a Christian at any time. And Paul gives you such a clear example Of how following Christ and being ill-treated looks when a sheep is wise but innocent among wolves. If we are not willing to follow Christ's pattern, then we cannot say like Paul, we are co-workers with Christ. And we cannot say with Matthew chapter 10 that he is sending us. I think 
that one of the great errors I see in my own soul and in our culture, uh, that you know, the church culture that we live in is this. I expect that God will use me to bring life to other people, the gospel to other people, help other people. I expect that he will do that without me having to take verse 4 through 10 seriously. I only have to take verse 3. Do you ever feel that way? I think all of us would admit, I don't need to live a hypocritical life. If I live this openly hypocritical life, if if I'm happy to live two lives, one at church and one at home, then if that's okay with me, then I've brought just cause for people to doubt what I say about Christ. So we say, I'm not going to live that. I'm not going to be that kind of a person. Well, great, but that's not enough. It's not enough to say, I won't do bad things. I I won't be a, a, a hypocrite. I won't, you know, give offense You must also, if you're going to follow Christ and Paul, you must also as a disciple be willing to take all those things that verse 4 through 10 say and you understand why it's happening and you are okay with it and you don't complain. When Paul has to mention, and Chuck's been pointing this out in 2 Corinthians because he has to do it a lot in 2 Corinthians. When Paul says, I'm going to have to tell you some things, okay, the, the, other, the false teachers say that they have all these credentials. I shouldn't have to say this, but I am going to give you my credentials. And he lays out his credentials. I've suffered, I've done this, I've done this. Do you know when he says those things, how frequently he says things like this? I'm speaking as a madman now, I'm speaking as a crazy person. It is not normal for the healthy Christian to suffer for Christ's namesake. And tell everybody about it all the time. It's the madman, Paul says, that does that. But I'm going to have to appear like a madman, he says, for the sake of you people. I'm going to have to explain all that I've endured. So that you can see that I'm not lying. If we don't understand that one of the greatest tools we have evangelistically and even in helping other believers to grow, that one of the greatest tools you have are these billboards um, that God has given us to display Christ on. And the highest and biggest of them all is when you suffer unjustly for love of Christ. And you don't quit loving. You don't quit loving Christ. You don't even quit loving the enemy. How in the world will a culture that is crammed full of churches like our culture, where there is no lack of church buildings, how will people who have already been baptized and told that they're Christians, but now don't go to church at all, how will they, when they already know all your words, how will they be impacted by anything you say about Jesus Christ? They could say the same things to you. They can finish your sentences. And one of the answers is this, that you have been given and chosen. You have been given for the purpose, uh, or the purpose has been given to you of suffering. Doing it for Christ's sake and laying aside your rights to be treated correctly, trusting that to God, You do that for the sake of something so much more precious. And what is more precious than that is that you are allowed to show people who Christ really is. So let's stop and ask ourselves this week. How did you do? Christian, just talking to the disciples of Christ. Did you represent Jesus Christ as Paul does in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 6? Did you avoid, carefully avoid, thoughtfully avoid, it's not easy, those things which would give a just fair cause for offense that would unravel what you say about Jesus? Was that all we did? Or did you embrace those opportunities that Christ gives where people in some measure, in some degree, treat you poorly because you love Christ and you accepted that understanding that this is a great opportunity For me to commend my Lord and my claims to belong to my Lord to a people that aren't going to read their Bibles.
Well, he says, be prepared for this. Let me give you another major point. When you look at Matthew chapter 10, back to Matthew chapter 10, we could say it this way. This suffering and this ill treatment, it's not personal. Don't take it personally. It is not personal. Well, it is personal. Just not your person. If it's your person, then it's not what Matthew 10 is talking about. If we're in trouble with the government because we misbehave, Peter says, what good is that? Or if you're in trouble with the government because you misbehave and you suffer quietly, Peter says, what good is that? I mean, you deserved it. You should suffer quietly. But if people treat you wrongly for doing good, that's worth something. So it's not personal. It is personal. It's just not your person. In verse 24 and 25 of the chapter, again in verse 18 and and, and other places and all through the Bible, we find this reality. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Well, what's he talking about? There is something about the nature of a Christian that makes opposition from the world inevitable. It is not primarily the way you talk. There are people that talk like a Christian that don't get mistreated by the world. It is not even how you live. There are people who live moral lives who do not get mistreated by the world. It is something so much deeper. It is this. It's, it's, it's contained in that phrase in verse 18. For my sake. For my name's sake. The Christian is a person who, yes, we believe what the scripture says, and yes, we follow what the scripture says, and yes, we say what the scripture says, but the Christian is something so much more. A Christian is a person who has an entirely new identity. I am his. He is mine. And that changes everything at the root level. Anybody can embrace Christian doctrines. Anybody can read the Christian book, can say the Christian words. And most people can, at least while you're in front of people, embrace a certain kind of Christian morality. Uh, You know, an, an unselfish kind of lifestyle. But a Christian is someone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ that is so intimate and complete and close That no other relationship on earth really reaches it. It's closer than child to parent. It's even closer than husband and wife. He is our life, Paul says. In him is our life. We are placed in him by the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us by that spirit. There is this weaving together of who I am with who he is. I mean, we don't become God. But, you know, what metaphor can you use? In Christ, the world notices the identification. You are his. You belong to him. Not just you're talking religious. Are you a Baptist or a Methodist? Or you're being a good person. Why? But you're his. You're the king's. I hate the king. I don't like the people that belong to the king either. You believe what the king says. I don't like what the king says. I don't like what you say either. The world sees the Christian as united to the king, Jesus. And that identification is at the root of everything that the Christian has to endure that is unjust because of our love for Christ. But it's not just the world. Christ sees this identification. You're his. He's yours. So you need to see this identification. Let's just stop and think about it. Let me give you a few passages where we read this in other places. 
Um, in John 15, I'll just give you one because I have too many. John 15. If you want the notes after the service, I can send them to you if you shoot me an email. Verse 18, where Jesus is talking about the life of a disciple, he says this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. On and on. And it's here. It's in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The identification with Christ. The fact that we are his. That we are being molded into his image. That we are representing him. Explains why the world doesn't like a Christian. When it doesn't make sense any other way. If a Christian is the best citizen. Why doesn't the government like the Christian? If the Christian is the best um, worker in a a business. Why doesn't the employer like the Christian employees best? If a Christian isn't the best Christian, isn't the best church member, why is it that sometimes churches don't, or religious gatherings, don't like it when people follow Christ and they're offended? If a Christian is the best husband, if the Christian is the best wife, mom, dad, child, sibling, brother and sister, why is it that having a Christian in a home sometimes causes so much discord when all the Christian is doing is following Jesus. And the universal principle is here. No pupil is more significant than his teacher, and no servant is more significant than his master, and no child is more significant than the parent that owns the home. And so it goes like this. If a person hates the master, then they hate the servants that work for the master. If the If a person hates the teacher, then they hate the pupils that think like that teacher. And if a person hates the dad, then they tend to hate all the kids that are at the dad's house. It is your union with Christ that the world can see that makes them reject you. Second, understanding this fuels an enduring patience that Paul talked about. You know, all those things in 2 Corinthians 6. How do you do that, Paul? Well, just remind myself. I am his. I'm the king's. He is mine. There is such a close union. The world can see it. I see it. And when I understand that, then I am able to respond rightly to people's mistreatment of me. I don't have to complain. I don't have to whine. I don't have to claim my rights. I don't have to walk away from a hard situation. I do this for the name of my king. And when we see him as he is, that makes it all worth it. But I mentioned that the world sees this about you and you need to see this, but I did also say that Jesus sees this. This identification, Christ sees you, Christian is his. Do you know what that means? That means that when people persecute the Christian, Christ takes it personally. He said to Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus, when Paul was converted, you remember the vision? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute, not the Christians, me? He's in heaven on a throne. What can Paul do to him? Well, Saul persecuted his people. And Christ sees his people as his body, as himself. In the judgment at the end of times, Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. He talks to the believers and he says, come to this kingdom I've prepared for you. I was sick and you ministered to me. You, you know, you helped me. I was hungry. You fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the Christians are shocked and they say, when did we ever see Jesus in prison or sick or hungry? And he said, every time you did it to the least of mine, to the least Christian, you did it to me. He took it quite personally because of that identification. Of course, then he turns around and says to the other religious people, 
I was sick and I was imprisoned and, and I was hungry and you didn't do anything. And they say, well, we didn't know you were in prison. We didn't know you were sick. We would have. And when did we miss that opportunity? Well, every time you didn't do it for the least Christian, you didn't do it to me. At the end of Matthew chapter 10, verse 40 and 41 and 42, listen to what he says. He who receives me and he who receives, sorry, he who receives, he, sorry, let me read that again. He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There's the pattern. It's the same pattern. People who heard Christ and said, I want nothing to do with your crazy religion really were saying, I want nothing to do with God the Father or his crazy religion. And when a Christian lives by grace, not perfectly, but in harmony with what we say, and when we say the things Christ would have us to say in the way he would have us to say it, and people turn to a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus, and say, I want nothing to do with what you're saying, man. Really what they're saying is, I want nothing to do with what Christ is saying. When you look at Matthew 10, it is obvious that Jesus sees the believer, the disciple, as so intimately connected with him that he takes personally everything that happens to his people. That's why he says, if you go into a home and you start to share this truth I'm sending you with, the gospel of the kingdom, if they say, I want to hear more, you go in and my blessing will be on the house. But if you go in a house and they say, I don't want anything to do with you, then I will be against them. When you represent Christ and people speak highly of you, it does happen. The Christians around you say, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, oh, they're, they're just so helpful. I don't know how I could have made it without them. You do need to remind yourself that it really isn't you. It's Christ that you represent. And they may use your name unwisely, but it's Christ. So don't get a big head. But when you, when you go home and you're the only one in the family that loves the Lord and you get mocked, or when you go to work and you get mocked and you're talked about in a way that is not honest and you're misrepresented and mistreated, don't become a martyr and claim your rights because it's really Christ that they're treating this way. And that's how Christ sees it and he will respond accordingly. Well, let me give you the four reasons not to fear. I told you we'd just hit that at the end and we're out of time. In the passage, he says, but don't fear. And all of us need that. When you're talking to an adult child, you know, to, to your adult son or daughter, and you are pouring your heart out and you think, you know, when I say what has to be said, this may be the last time they talk to me. I love them. You know, kids don't understand how much you love them. And how costly it is for you to say the truth to them. And, and they may get angry and shut you out. When I talk to my best friend about Christ. And I'm going to have to say something that they don't want to hear. I know it's the right thing to say. And it's the right time in the right way. But this may lose me my closest, oldest friend. You can be afraid. You can be afraid to be treated wrong in so many ways. But Christ says don't be. Why? And he just, throughout this passage, he gives a number of things. Number one. Everything will one day be revealed by God, he says. The truth about the fact that you were showing love to them when you said hard things, that will be revealed. So he says, don't fear to say things openly that I've taught you in secret. You know, for them, especially in that day, the things he said about himself as a Messiah one-on-one, -on -one, go tell it openly. For you, the things that you're learning as you study your Bible, not rashly, not harshly, but openly, boldly in love say it it will all be revealed on one on the end day what it was nobody will be confused then second he says no one who is against his people can really do them any really any real lasting harm they could kill your body but they, they god would just raise it immortal we don't want to die but they can't ultimately take what's precious Third, he says, you're, you're of more value to the king. You are of value to the king. You're more of value than a bird. And he mentions the cheapest bird you could buy back then. 
sparrow, two for a penny. He knows the hairs on your head. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without the will of the Lord being involved. And not one hair drops from your head. I'm sorry, without the will of the Lord being involved. So live aware of his awareness of you. And finally, Christ will confess you in the highest courts of heaven because you confess him here. Well, we're going to pick up with the theme again next week. And so because this has been one sermon that's been stretched out, let me kind of just stop and give you a simple application. As the Christian loves the king, walks with the king, by the king, for the king, you must understand and prepare yourself, you know, steal yourself. Be prepared for unfair treatment anywhere. Do not be shaken from your purpose of being a picture of Christ to those people just because they're cruel. Do not join the entitlement culture. Understand that it's happening because there is an identification between you and Christ that is so real and close that even the lost person sees it and Christ sees it. So you're going to need to see it or you won't understand what's happening. And there is no reason to fear of all people on the earth. Why would you? Um, A number of us here knew... Clyde Cranford, who wrote the book, Because We Love Him, that we use for discipleship. Some of us here met Clyde. And I remember talking to Clyde, and he mentioned a professor at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary that had quit just prior to me coming. So I didn't get to meet him. His name was Dr. Charlie Culpepper. He was actually pretty famous in his day because he was a missionary in China prior to the Communist Revolution. So during the communist revolution, he told his students, he lived through it, that uh, the, the soldiers were sent to every Christian's home to just ransack it, destroy it, and loot it. And so they came to that missionary's house, and they, uh, they sent all the missionaries upstairs. And so all the missionaries went to a little room upstairs, and they were locked in there, and they prayed, and they could hear the soldiers just ripping and destroying everything in their house, you know, that they'd been there for decades. So it was their home and, and taking anything they wanted, destroying anything that was precious to them. And uh, Dr. Culpepper said he looked around and, and the other mission, missionaries were quite fretful. And he started to laugh and they thought that he had cracked under the pressure. And they said, what are you laughing about? And he said, it's it just so clear they can't, Take anything that's precious to us. So they may take, like Luther's hymn, goods, children, wife. They may take your life. They cannot take what God gives. No reason to fear. We walk with Christ. We look like Christ. We speak like Christ. And use every unpleasant circumstance as a billboard to show the world Christ in a way that it cannot see just by our car being in a church parking lot. Well, let's sing. Hymn 771. The tune for this we'll sing is The Church's One Foundation. Uh, it's written by Frank Houghton. I'm not even sure how to pronounce, pronounce his name, but I think I know the guy. He worked in China with Hudson Taylor. And with, I believe with Amy Carmichael, there was connection. And um, this is what he said. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway. Where forces that defy thee, defy thee still today. With none to heed their crying for life and love and light. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. In that kind of a place, he says, verse 3. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming 
that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message. Ours, fired by the same ambition. To, ye, to thee, we yield our powers. We give our all. Verse 4. O Father, who sustained them, the Christians before us. O Spirit, who inspired. Savior, whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us. From lethargy awake. Forth on thy errands send us to labor for thy sake. I don't think we've ever sung this before. Elizabeth, will you play through that tune just once and then we'll stand and sing. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen.